One of the most upsetting things that ever happens to me in my entire life is when something bad happens to me uh, by a person, somebody hurts me, and they get away with it. Don't you hate that? Like if somebody hurts you and they get away with it, nothing happens. Like there's this, this almost like righteous indignation that wells up within your heart. And you, you like it, it, like if, if I'm going to lose it, it's going to be over something. Like it's the injustice of it all, right? Like that's the thing that, that like fills my cup with rage almost to spilling over. And God help you if you hurt my kids and get away with it. Because bro, <laughs> right? Hell hath no fury like a mama bear. Mama bears say amen. <laughs> right? But you, you let somebody hurt, a, like you, you let your kid come home and tell you that they were bullied or picked on or somebody punched them. And then you say, well, did you tell the teacher? Right? That's what you say. Did you tell the teacher? And then they say, yeah. And then what do we say? What did the teacher do? And when they say the teacher did nothing, <laughs> well, I'm about to do something. Where's my email? Right? Now, I'd, I'd, the thing is, is I'd, I, I want justice. I, and I mean, I, I really want it. For, now I want it for you. I just want it a little bit more for me. The, the best example I can think of or the easiest, quickest thing that I thought of as an example of this would be uh, like when you go shopping at the mall and you leave your car in the parking lot because you're, you're not taking it in. Um, and then you come back out to your car later on and somebody sideswiped it. Okay, few of us. It's happened too, apparently. And then you, you, you look over, you're like, what the heck happened, right? There's like this gigantic ding in your bumper where somebody backed up across the aisle from you and just nailed you, right? And then you look on your dashboard because they should have left what up there? A note, right? And all you see is a $5 Duncan card. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but I don't have insurance, Right? Or that's okay, yours will pay for it, or whatever. Half the time, it's not even a note. And you're like, you're, you're angry, and, and you're, you're like the injustice of this, and you, you begin praying that they would have a flat tire on the way home, and that the shrapnel from the rubber would start smacking the side of their car on the side of the gas tank, and that it would spark, and that they would pull over, and that they would get out right before it goes up in a ball of flames, and then the insurance doesn't cover it. Ah! Has anybody else ever prayed prayers like that? Is your preacher the only like pagan in the room? <laughs> right? Like that's and I don't want anybody to die. I just want your car to burn in hell. That's what I want. Uh, that's all I want. Uh, then you go to the uh, the the mall cops and they didn't see nothing because they're just playing on their cell phones out in the back forty, right? And then you you go into the the mall office and of course the cameras have been broken for two years on the side of the parking lot your car was in. So now you figure they ought to pay because they're not protecting you and your, pro your, your property, right? And I like, now if this happens to you, like if that happened to you, then I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. And then I can forget about it real easy, right? Like, I'd, like, I'd, like when you need justice, if the same thing happens to you, I do feel bad for you, but I don't feel as bad for you as I feel for me when it happens to me. So here's a question. Does everybody deserve justice? Be careful. It's a trick question. That's why the other 90% didn't even answer. <laughs> Does everybody deserve justice? Let me put it this way. Does every, depends. There you go. That's an honest answer. Does everybody who does wrong deserve to be punished for doing wrong? Everybody. <laughs> 
lady up front seat goes, oh my gosh, I don't even know. I don't know. <laughs> Thing is, is, I want you punished, but I want forgiveness. That's, that's the way it really is. I want you to be punished. It's just that I, I, want, I want forgiveness because I can think of a whole lot of times where I've done wrong and I didn't want to get in trouble. How many of you guys have ever done wrong and you did not get in trouble and you were thankful that there was no justice on that day? Because it was you, right? So when we think about things like good and evil, justice and grace, punishment and forgiveness, I think our feelings are complex, especially when we insert us into the equation. It's easy when I'm looking at someone else, but it's more difficult when I'm looking in the mirror. I want you to be punished if you hurt me, but if I hurt you, I want you to forgive me instead. If you struggle with the way that you continue to do wrong and you continue to sin and you continue to transgress your own conscience and you want God to forgive you, but there's also a part in your heart where you know you don't deserve to be forgiven because you know you're going to do it again, but you really want to be forgiven because you feel so bad, then today's teaching, I hope, is an encouragement for you. If you struggle with the idea that God would actually forgive really bad people for doing really, really bad things, then I think today's teaching will be helpful for you. You're also going to see that God does not forgive everyone. And if the idea that God doesn't forgive everyone terrifies you, then today's teaching is for you. Last week, uh, we talked about Judas. It's the context, the setup for today's teaching. And Judas had betrayed Jesus, and uh, Jesus was then arrested. Uh, after he's arrested, he's uh, taken to Caiaphas's house. His hands are tied up above his head, and man, they just, they just work his body, and they pluck out his beard, which is a shame for Jewish men to not, not have a beard, and they, they humiliate and embarrass him but they know that they don't legally have the right to put him to death and they want him to die. So they have to take him to the Romans because only the Romans under Roman law can execute somebody. They take him to Herod and Herod puts him through a mini inquisition and also beats the living tar out of him. They put a bag over his head and they say, well, they, you say you're a prophet. All right, we'll prophesy which one of us is about to hit you. And then with a bag over his head, they start working his face. Uh, they play a game with them. And if you go over and do a tour of Israel now, the, the basement where the soldiers would have kept the prisoners uh, in between trials is actually untouched. Uh, it's still there. I mean, if you've got lights and everything, but you can still see the carving in the stone floor. It's a spiral game that, that uh, the soldiers, who each were responsible for their prisoner, uh, would play a dice game, uh, and they would move a token around. And when they got to different stations on this game, you had to do to your prisoner the thing that was on the game. And that's where the whole, the crown of thorns and the robe and the scepter and the spitting and the, the beating and all of that corresponds with these different, these different places on, on, this, on this game. Then uh, Herod has a guest in town. His name is Pontius Pilate. And so he sends him to Pontius Pilate and says, well, you're, you're an emissary from Rome. You, like, what do you, what do you think ought to be done? And Pilate's wife has a dream during the middle of the night not to mess with him at all. And, uh, uh, and, and, and so, he, so he has this custom where he brings out political prisoners 
and he releases one of them in honor of the Jewish high holiday as a way to appease the masses so that they don't revolt. And he, he doesn't lose control of these oppressed people and then Rome chop off his head and replace him with somebody else who can control the populace, right? So he brings out the worst prisoner he can think of as a contrast to Jesus and says, who do you want me to release? And they say, Barabbas. By the way, his name is Bar-Abbas. His name, son of the father. So you've got one son of the father contracted with the son of the father, right? So it's, it's kind of like a little wordplay even. And I don't even know if anybody caught that pun there, but they say, we'll release Barabbas. And what should I do with Jesus? And they say, we'll crucify him, crucify him. They have him flogged and that doesn't appease the masses. And the Bible says that he's whipped. Uh, it's got a nine tail. It's got nine pieces of leather on it with bone glass uh, bits of nail and rock and, and it kind of sticks to you and then when they take it off it just kind of just rips and the Bible says he was beaten so badly you couldn't tell if he was a man. I don't know if that means you could tell what, what, what species he was or what gender he was but either way he was stripped naked in front of everybody and then made to carry his, his crossbeam uh, to the place of execution. Now Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus uh, stumbles on the way to the crucifixion because even though he was a carpenter before there were power tools, I don't, like you see the skinny, wimpy Jesus on the cross? You seen that picture of that Jesus? I, I don't think that that's probably historically accurate. I don't think it makes sense in the context because Jesus was raised as a carpenter. I don't know any skinny, wimpy carpenters, do you? And they got power tools. So if Jesus needed to peg a, 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 a piece of lumber, he had one of those screws where he's doing this, to, like, right? Like Jesus had... He had forearms like my thighs. That's probably like, my Jesus is jacked. You can keep the wimpy one if you want. <laughs> After having all the skin torn off him, he was still able to carry a, a cross beam across the city. That's not a wimpy man. So I, it doesn't bother me that he stumbled. Like, who wouldn't have stumbled? They, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tells us they introduce a new character to the story that isn't mentioned before or after, never seen from, heard from ever again. If, if this is a made-up story, you wouldn't, like, why would you introduce this character? Because he's a distraction. He doesn't move the plot line forward. His name is Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in northern Africa. So he's not even, he might be Jewish or he might have converted to Judaism. He's not from Israel. Otherwise, they wouldn't have said he's of Cyrene. But Simon the North African is included in the story for, who knows? He's an outsider, and he's, he's included in the story. Luke and John tell us that Jesus wasn't, didn't leave Herod's palace uh, alone. Luke and John tell us that when Jesus was led to the crucifixion, he was accompanied by two other criminals that were going to be executed that day also. And these criminals are also uh, outsiders to the story. They're never mentioned before. We don't know exactly what they did to have deserved death. There are some scholarly opinions on this that I'm going to share in, in, a, in a few moments. Um, but they're also outsiders to the story. Now, in the last 24 hours, Jesus has been abandoned by everybody that he loves. All the disciples have forsaken him. Uh, they've scattered off into the night. Uh, none of them stood by his side. Peter denied him three times while he was being tortured to death. Right? Like all of that happened, like everybody has left him. The leaders of his own people, the Jewish, Jewish priests and, and religious ruling class, the, the Pharisees, have, have all rejected him. And, and even the Romans have rejected him. Like every, 
everybody has rejected Jesus. And only, only two people become devoted followers of Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. Only two people. And both of them are outsiders. The two people that actually become devoted followers of Jesus on the day of his crucifixion are probably the last two people you would have ever picked. If I had said, here's the list of characters, which ones do you think are changed by what happens on the crucifixion? And one of them we're not going to be looking at today, and the other one we are. So the one that we're not, let me go ahead and get him out of the way, is the centurion who was in charge of his execution and his torture. This guy is, he's an expert in physical torture. And bro, he's tortured, who knows how many hundreds of people. But something about Jesus is different, and the guy who's in charge of Jesus' execution ends up committing to faith in Jesus. And one of these two, two criminals, the two least likely people, two outsiders. Now, Matthew and Mark tell us about Simon of Cyrene, and Luke tells us about the two criminals. But only Luke tells us about both of the outsiders in the crucifixion of Jesus. So my first thought when I see something unique in a story or in the scriptures, my thought is, why? why? Why was that included? Why did God think it important to include that detail, especially if it doesn't move the plot line forward? And, and I think it's important to recognize that Luke is also the only outsider who's an author of any of the books in the Bible. Luke is the only non-Jewish author of any books in the Bible. That's, we don't know about Job. We don't know, is he Jewish or not? We don't know. Job, the patience of Job, that guy, that's a book in the Bible. It's, they think chronologically it might have been the first one written even before Moses existed, but <clears throat> we don't know that for sure. The only author in the New Testament, in the whole Bible, that we know for a fact was not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Luke. Luke is an outsider. So it makes sense to me that the only outsider that God used to write any scriptures wanted to make sure that every outsider that was included in the story of Jesus got included in his narrative of the life and death of Jesus. Why? So that you would know that if you feel like you're an outsider, that there's a place for you too. And I think that's awesome. Because there's a lot of times when I feel like I'm an outsider to God. And I don't deserve another chance. Right? And that's why Luke goes, I want you to know there's two other guys that don't belong here that God put here. So that you would know that whether you feel like you belong here or not, God has a place for you here anyway. I love that. So we're going to pick up the story, Luke's account of Jesus being led out to the cross with the two criminals in Luke chapter 23. If you've got your Bible, go to Luke chapter 23, and I'll start in verse 32. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right hand and one on his left. And then Jesus said, not to the guy on his right, not to the guy on his left, not to the centurion, and not to any of the other people who were there watching this, his crucifixion. He actually starts talking to God, which probably is not the first time a centurion had ever seen somebody he was torturing to death cry out to God. But what Jesus cried out to God probably surprised him because this was Jesus' prayer when he was being tortured to death. He prayed, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled uh, for his clothes by throwing dice. 
Now, if I'm an innocent person like Jesus and I'm being tortured to death for, some, for crimes I never committed, I don't know that I would be praying for the people who are torturing me to death, would you? Bro, the things that I would be saying to you would be bleeped, right? I'd be bleeping all over your bleeping bleep. That's, that's what I would, like I'd, I, would, I would be saying a lot, just none of it repeatable to your mama, Right? I might would cry out for my mama. I've seen movies and heard stories about people who are dying and on their death, especially if it's a painful death, they begin whimpering for their mother. Like that happened in in battle, right? You've probably seen Band of Brothers and and heard stories from war where people are dying and they they call out for their mother. But I'll, I'll bet you this was the very first time the Roman centurion heard anybody cry out to God on his behalf. That had to be an odd sensation. Like to hear this guy cry out to God like everybody else at some point that he's ever tortured to death. But then they prayed for his forgiveness? Bro, that's something you don't get out of your head very easily. Now Luke wasn't there. Luke is not Jewish. He was not a disciple. He said in the first chapter of the book of Luke and the first chapter of Acts, which is the Acts of the Apostles, he writes those both, by the way, for his other non-Jewish friend, Theophilus. This is an account of the life and times of Jesus as I've been able to verify among multiple witnesses so that you can be assured of the stories you've heard about Jesus also, he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. So he's heard this prayer from multiple witnesses who were at the crucifixion who also heard This prayer. Now, if Luke finds them and they're sharing this story with Luke years later, it's possible that the people who told Luke what Jesus had prayed were equally impacted by Jesus' prayer for forgiveness for these people. So Jesus prays for their forgiveness. People hear it and repeat it to Luke decades later, and then he writes it down for us. Which means the centurion hears it and means that both of the criminals hear it. And here's the response. The response is in Luke chapter 23, verse 35. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. When they heard Jesus taking the moral high ground, they mocked him for it. And they said, he saved others. They said, let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. If you really are God in the flesh, then getting off this cross shouldn't be a difficult thing for you to do. Come on, get up, get off that cross. Or maybe you ain't who you said you were is how the taunting begins. The soldiers mocked him too by offering a drink of sour wine and then when he tasted it and winced at it, oh, they thought that was hilarious. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The reason why they were using that phrase is because Pontius Pilate had asked in order to absolve his own conscience when his wife said, have nothing to do with this man. He's innocent. I was warned in a dream. It'll go very bad for you if you have anything to do with this guy. What he does is he walks over to a bowl of water and he washes his hands, says, I'm innocent of this man's death. Do with him what you want. And he said, but wait, put a sign over his head that says he is the king of the Jews. So they, he, they have it written. And when the high priests see that, they come to Pontius Pilate and they're like, wait, 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 wait. We want you to amend this sign so that it said, he said he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I said, I said. So the whole time they're mocking Jesus, there's a sign over his head acknowledging something about him that they're not ready to admit, that he's the king of the Jews. But the Romans read it, 
If you really are, then do something about it, is what they say. They called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, verse 37, then save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. And then we get to a conversation between this criminal and Jesus and this criminal and that criminal and Jesus and this criminal. That's the way the conversation goes. Now, even though John tells us about the criminals that were crucified with Jesus, he doesn't give us the conversation. I have no idea why he doesn't give us the conversation. But Luke does, and only Luke gives us this conversation. That's why we're looking at Luke today. So here we are, uh, Luke. And I'm going to be in verse 39. One of the criminals hanging beside Jesus joined in the scoffing himself. He said, oh, so you're the Messiah, are you? Well, prove it by saving yourself. Oh, ha ha, and us too. He's mocking. Obviously doesn't believe Jesus can do this. If you are the Messiah, then prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Homeboy's fresh, right? If you do something for me, I'll believe in you. You ain't going to do nothing for me. I ain't going to believe in you. Come on, do something. Do something, Sky Fairy, right? If you are, then prove it. Help me. Do what I want. If you do what I want, I'll believe in you. If you relieve me of my suffering, then I'll believe in you. The criminal on this side, verse 40, but the other criminal pr protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? Is there, is there no humility in you at all? Like, bro, with your last breath, you're challenging God? What the heck, bro? Like, there's... There's no humility in you at all? Like this guy just, I can't believe the audacity of that guy. That's insane. And so while he's being crucified, he yells at that guy, are you a flipping moron? Like, are you going to be an arrogant jerk all the way until your actual last breath? Don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. I see humility in this guy, and I see arrogance and pride in this guy. This guy says, I deserve everything that I get. I don't, I don't deserve anything. Like I, God doesn't owe me anything. And from that posture of humility, God doesn't owe me anything. He looks at Jesus in verse 42. Then he said, Jesus and he doesn't ask Jesus to take him off the cross. He doesn't ask Jesus to relieve his suffering. He doesn't ask Jesus to relieve his pain. All he says is, on the other side of this, when you get to heaven, would you just think a good thought about me? Maybe that would make some of this make sense. Maybe that would make this worth it. Would you just remember me? He didn't even say, would you take me with you? He knows he doesn't deserve that. Like, he can't pray that prayer. Not honestly. He knows who he is, right? He knows who he is. And he knows God doesn't owe me nothing. I'm not going to be fresh with God. Who the heck do I think I am? But if you would just think a nice thought about me, that would be great. 
And then Jesus replied to this guy, not this guy. I promise you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus gave him way more than he even asked, than he even dared to ask for. It's crazy. It's crazy. Now, the word criminal that Luke uses to describe these two guys is translated into English as, as, as the word criminal, and it comes from the same Greek word that Jesus used to describe what happened to the guy that was beat up and then rescued by the Good Samaritan. How many of you guys are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan? There's a hospital in Brockton named after it. Anyone? Anyone? When Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor, he tells the story of a Jewish man who goes from Jericho to Jerusalem, and it's a sketchy road. You should never take that road by yourself back in those days because there were highwaymen, robbers. What they would do is they would wait for the weak, the vulnerable. Men, women, children, they didn't care. If they outnumbered you, they were going to jump out and beat the living tar of you or kill you if necessary for whatever few coins you have in your purse, in your bag. They didn't care. They didn't know how much you had. It didn't matter. They were going to beat the living tar out of you, take what you had, and leave you for dead. So these criminals were being executed not because they broke into somebody's house and stole a TV. TVs didn't exist then, but if they did, that isn't what they were being killed for. They weren't being killed for stealing somebody's chariot. I was going to say bike, but I thought you doesn't matter. Anyway, they were highwaymen. They were the guys who were hiding in the hills, waiting for people to come by. Then they would jump out, and they would beat you senseless. And if they killed you, they killed you. No doubt, if they're being executed, they probably did kill somebody. Just like the guy that was left for dead, the priest walks by and doesn't help him. The tribe of Levi, one of the people who takes care of the temple, walks by and doesn't help him. The one guy who does help him is also an outsider. Jesus made heroes out of a lot of outsiders. And uh, this outsider, this half-Jew, uh, which to a Jewish person was worse than being non-Jewish because your parents chose to walk away from our faith and our heritage by marrying somebody who's not Jewish and then having a child, God forbid. It's like you're the worst of the worst. And that guy actually stops and, and helped the guy who'd been left for dead. So that's who these criminals were. So no doubt the family members of those that they had robbed and killed over what few coins that my grandma, my uncle had with him are there to make sure justice is served. I wonder if it was hard for them to see Jesus forgive that guy. If that guy was the guy that hurt their family. Right? Like this is a real story with real people, with real consequences, with real thoughts and real emotions. And there's real things that have happened that have led to this. But Jesus did not forgive this guy. He didn't forgive him. Both guys were guilty of the same crime. One was forgiven, the other wasn't. One guy is today in the presence of God and the other guy today is not. He's in hell. He didn't forgive that guy. Jesus didn't even give that guy a chance. Like, these things are unsettling. But there's three things I learned with the last few minutes that I have from this really brief conversation that I think applies to me. And maybe one of them will also apply to you. And the first is this that I, like this guy, I want salvation without repentance. I want God to fix my circumstances. 
I just don't want God to ask me to change my mind, to change my life, change my heart. But I want him to fix everything. That's what I want. I just don't want him to change my, my attitude. I don't want him to change my perspective about my own brokenness. But I want God to fix everything. And some of us may have prayed the same thing or said the same thing to Jesus that he did, maybe in different words. Save yourself and then I'll believe in you. Maybe you didn't say it that way, but maybe you said it this way. God, I'll believe in you if you what? And maybe you didn't even say it, but maybe it was like this. God, if you don't, if you don't, if my grandma dies, I'm never going to talk to you ever again right? And you might not have ever actually said it, but something bad happened and you've been holding God hostage to your anger that we live in a broken world and you got broke, right? And so whether it was a conscious thought or not, there's this ongoing threat thing that you've got going with God that he'd better or you won't, right? And the first thing I think all of us need to be reminded of is that God's not threatened by your threats. I don't think God up in heaven is worried that you're mad at him because he wasn't your genie. Bro, if he's God, he's God. Who the, the heck do I think I am challenging him? If you are, then you better. But this guy goes, you don't have to do nothing. But if you would just think about me, I'd love that. Right? God, second thing, sorry. I almost said the second point and I wasn't ready for it. The other thing I want to point out from the first guy about the salvation without repentance is this guy thought that his greatest threat was the pain that he was going through. And that's what motivated that attitude towards God. And I think you and I are like that. We feel that whatever pain that we're going through right now is the greatest threat to us. And it's why it's the only thing we're interested from God is that he just relieves us of this pain. Whether your pain comes from a divorce, a death, or a betrayal. We just want the pain to go away. And because we feel this so intensely, it feels like the greatest threat. But God plays a much longer game. And he knows the greater threat is the deeper problem that is within you, not the pain that is around you. And he knows it's your heart because the greatest threat to you is what you're going to let this physical pain do in your heart towards God and how that impacts you and his relationship for eternity. So God's looking at something deeper. You and I are just looking at what we feel right now. And how we feel right now is how we feel we're always going to feel. And if I hurt right now, I feel like I'm always going to hurt. Right? I and mean, if I'm happy right now, I feel like I'm always going to be happy. If I'm lonely, I feel like I'm always going to be lonely. However you feel right now is how we feel we're always going to feel. It's because we live right here in the moment. But God sees the entire picture and he knows 
that the worst thing to happen to you is not that you got hurt. It would be if you walked away. That's the biggest danger to you. That's the game God's playing. I think another tragic thing is that God was right there with this guy in his pain and he completely missed him because all he was looking for was relief from his pain. He wasn't looking for God in it. So he missed him. Isn't that crazy? Physically, this guy was closer in proximity to Jesus than you and I ever been. He's not around anymore anyway. He's in heaven, right? So, but this guy was right there and he completely missed God because he was focused on the wrong thing. And it makes me wonder if there's a danger that you and I are going to miss God in our pain too because we're not looking for him. All we care about is the pain. What if he was right here with you in this and you missed him? I think that would suck. It'd be so If you're going to go through pain, dear God in heaven, don't waste it. Your prayer ought to be, God, if I got to go through this, then do in me whatever you want. I'm a freaking open book. Write whatever you want to write on my pages. But I do not want to go through this again. Right? And while I don't deserve perfect, pretty words on all my perfect, pretty pages, if you would just write your name on one of these pages, I think I could be okay with all the other crap that's on them. Dang, that came out way more poetic than I thought. That was good. I want to write that down. I want to be rescued from my problems, but that doesn't mean that I want to repent of my sinful ways or change the things in my life that got me into these problems. I want to be honest. I'm that guy. I just wish I was that guy. My second observation is that God responds to repentant hearts. That's the number two I almost said a second ago. God responds to repentant hearts. God doesn't respond to our most urgent need. Right? Like we got into that just a second ago. That the pain makes this urgent, but not necessarily important. Like God, urgent, man, it's urgent. Fix it now, 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 fix it now. That's, that's what I want. But God responds not to my pain. He doesn't respond to the urgency of my circumstance. There's one thing that causes God to respond 100% of the time. It's a repentant heart. That gets God's attention every single time. God's not as concerned about cancer, debt, death, and the drama in my life as much as I do. But that's also not to say that he's unsympathetic toward the drama, the drama in my life. Because the New Testament is filled with stories of Jesus looking on the multitudes, feeling compassion, and then healing them. Why? Because he actually does care. He cares more about the deeper things, but he cares about the surface things too. You can ask. But if you're going to ask, ask with this kind of heart. 
Not that kind of heart. There's a right way to ask. The good thief recognized that Jesus didn't owe him anything, and that's where his request came from. And I think some of us, when we make our request to God, we're a little fresh, if we're going to be honest. Philippians chapter 4, 6 and 7 says this, Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about it. Tell God what you need and thank Him for what He's already done. That's the condition. Tell God what you need as long as you're willing to be grateful for what He's already done. What does that gratitude do in me? It keeps me from being presumptuous. It says, God, I'm grateful for everything you've already done. You don't have to do more, but... My prayer is, if I have not because I ask not, then I'm asking. My prayer is, I want what you want for me more than what I want for me. So either change the circumstances or change my wants. I can pray that too. I think that those are all prayers that are made from this side of the cross. This side of the cross makes demands. This kind of, this side of the cross asks whatever it's going to ask from the posture of gratitude. I already have enough. You're already good to me. This verse says, tell God what you need, verse six. Thank him for all that he has done. Verse seven says that when you pray that way, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that you can understand. His peace will then guard your heart and your mind as you live in Christ Jesus. And truthfully, it's, it's the peace that gives me the ability. Like right now, there's chaos, right? Chaos and order. When things are happening that I can't control, there's, there's chaos. And there's no peace. And there's anxiety. And there's fear. And there's trauma in my heart. But when I can take this to the God who wasn't surprised by the death of my loved one, when I take this to God who wasn't surprised that my spouse left me, that my partner betrayed me, that my kids are struggling. It's not that God caused any of those things to happen, but he knew those things would happen, and he's already accounted for them in the story of my life. It's, honestly, it's not knowing what happens next that's making me so fearful. But the cool thing is I'm talking to the God who does know what's next, and he ain't freaking out. So since he ain't freaking out, I don't have to either. And that's where the peace that passes all understanding comes from. So while he didn't demand God remember him, he simply asked Jesus to remember him on the other side of death, and Jesus did more than that. He said that he'd be with him on the other side. Why do you think Jesus did that for him? Because Jesus knew his heart. That's why. Know what else? He knows yours. He knows why you're here in church today. And he honestly knows what you need. And he is willing to respond if you ask from the right side of the cross. So, so ask. And that brings me to the third and final observation from this passage of Scripture, that if you do go to God from this side, not this side, you'll find that God's grace is greater than you thought it would be. God is more kind than you, than you dreamed, more loving, more forgiving, more gracious. Did this man go to heaven, yes or no? Yes. Jesus said, you'll be with me in paradise. Did this man go to heaven? Yes or no? But what good deed had this guy ever done? What good deed had he ever done? None. 
He never did a single good thing, and maybe that's the point. God wanted to make sure that in the story of his payment for the sins of mankind, you would recognize that there is absolutely nothing you have to do to be forgiven. Other than it, repent. And maybe that's the hardest thing for you to get to the place where you stop acting like you're the freaking crap. Where you admit you are broken. I am guilty. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against others. And I deserve whatever God wants to give me. But dear God, if you want to give me something else, bro, I'll freaking take it. I would never ask or demand that you die for me. But since you volunteered, I'd be crazy to ignore you. So take my sins away too. That gets God's attention 100% of the time. And here's what I want you to know. Even though that man repented of his sins, he still died. Jesus did not change the circumstances. His circumstances were not the greatest threat. His rebellious heart was. And that got fixed. And I guarantee you that dude right now today in existence in the presence of God is completely okay with the way his story turned out. Right? And so will you. The suffering of the cross shows the depth of God's love for sinners. And the inclusion of this thief shows the scope of God's love to sinners. Just like me. The thief had nothing to offer but repentance and got nothing less than paradise. That is the scope of God's love and the extravagance of his grace. You can't earn it, but simply granted when you, from the sincerity of your heart, are broken over the rottenness of the sin that is in your heart. And if that's you, then you can call on Jesus to forgive and save you. And guess what? He will. Some of you have done some bad stuff and you want to ask God's forgiveness, but you don't think you can. The thief is proof. You ain't got to do nothing but ask. Stop being so prideful as to think there's something you can do to fix you. Get done with that. It's been said that the thieves are a contrast between every person who's given the instruction to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said, if anybody wants to come after me, that's what it takes. You've got to deny your selfishness. He couldn't do that. You've got to embrace your cross. He wouldn't do that. And you've got to give yourself to me, and he wouldn't do that. And all of you in here, given the same sermon, about the same story, in the same Bible, in the same language, in the same place, at the same time. But there are still two completely different types of people in this room. There are those who say, I will if. And there are those who say, I will no matter what. That wasn't as poetic. But those two people still exist. And I don't know which one you are, but I hope you do. So I'm going to ask everybody if you would bow your head with me and we'll pray. If you recognize yourself in the story of the first guy, the guy on my left, 
but you're done with that life, then would you just tell God? I'm asking you just to walk to the other side of the cross and just make a different prayer. God, I know that I have sinned against you and against others. I am an imperfect and severely flawed man, woman. And while you don't owe me nothing, if you would forgive me, I would be incredibly grateful. So much so that I will lay down my life for you. I will deny my selfish ways and I will take up my cross to follow you. I will give you every part of my life, God. I am 100% yours. Every part of me belongs to you. And some of you aren't comfortable praying that because you're on the wrong side. My prayer for you is that God gives you another chance on another day if you're unwilling to do that now. He might or he might not. I don't know. It's between you and God. If you're already a follower of Jesus, but there is pain and drama in your life, the Bible says you can take that to God too. So if you are living a painful existence right now, then tell that to God. God, you don't have to take this pain away, but I'm asking if you'll let me see you in this. If there's something you want me to learn through what I'm going through, I am an open book. And I'm asking you, God, to write your name on every page. Do in my life, through this painful circumstance I'm in right now, I am asking you to fix it. But even if you don't, just give me peace. Just let me be okay with this. Make that your prayer. Dear God, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to fill every heart. Heal every wound, every scar, every bleeding, broken part of our lives. Jesus, please heal us. Forgive us for sinning against you and against others. Soften hearts that have been hardened like stone. And those that were once soft but have become calloused by pride, soften again. Do in us, God, whatever you want. We belong to you. Let that be our prayer. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus, and we all stay together. Amen.